This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Peter Spiegel. Peter Spiegel has for almost six years been the Brussels Bureau Chief of the Financial Times and will shortly, shortly take up a new job as news editor back in London. Uh, Peter, let's start with the very beginning. When you took on this new job six years ago, almost six years ago, did you have any expectations of what the job would entail? No, I had come to the job uh, having been sort of a national security, you know, military affairs correspondent based in Washington, did a lot of sort of the war correspondent thing, and, and we had just had a baby, and my wife sort of said to me, enough of this war correspondent thing, let's have a nice, quiet, <laughs> uh, more settled job. So I thought I was getting this, 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 this European sinecure in, in this you know, city of, of food and, and, and culinary delights. And I have worked harder in this job than I ever did as a war correspondent. So it is not what I expected. Uh, you know, I got here knowing, you know, that the Greek crisis was going on. And part of the reason I wanted to come here is because I was really interested in the Eurozone crisis. But, you know, if you had asked me then whether six years later I would still be writing the same thing about the same crisis, uh, I didn't think it would go this long. I didn't think there would be these other crises, be it refugees, be it Russia, be it Brexit. Um, so it's been a much more eventful six years than I anticipated. Okay, and as you know, in this town, the, the Financial Times is seen as a kind of the Bible of this city, uh, maybe self-styled, but also the journal of record. Were you conscious as you stepped into this new role that you, uh, you uh, there was quite a legacy behind you and that you were going to be welcomed with open arms by the, by the Brussels crowd? Well, open arms I wasn't sure about. I mean, you know, everyone sort of jokes about, you know, why the FT chose an American to, to, to run a very European bureau. But I had, I had joined the FT back in the late 90s and left for about five years uh, to work for the Wall Street Journal and, and Los Angeles Times. But when Lionel Barber, the editor, approached me for Brussels, I knew that Brussels was one, if not the best jobs at the FT. Uh, it is, I think, the only city in the world probably where we are, in, in many sectors, the first read uh, in the morning for, for many of our readers. Uh, it doesn't happen in London, doesn't happen in New York. Uh, so I knew the standing that the FT had in Brussels, and I saw that as a great challenge and, and, and a great opportunity. I, again, was not sure exactly how I would be greeted. Uh, I do have a master's degree in European affairs, but that's, you know, back in the <laughs> mid-90s. Uh, and what I learned, uh, you know, in graduate school, it bears no resemblance to what actually happens here. Uh, but I was slightly nervous about how American would be uh, received uh, and, uh, you know... Perceptions that I didn't understand Europe. I, I am not a multilingual kind of person. My French is still horrible. Uh, but it's within literally weeks, if not a couple months, it, it was really sort of heartening to see people not only welcoming me, but you know, when it became clear on some issues, I had no idea what I was talking about. They would take me in and sit me down and say, let me really explain to you the difference between the commission and the council and, and how these different things work. And, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was hard. It was a very steep learning curve, but it was uh, very rewarding that there were so many people willing to sort of sit you down and, and walk you through things. Right. So as we know, the European Union has been going through a number of crises, and we all know that. Um, how would you rate uh, the, the, the response of the European Union uh, to these crises? People say, well, people, some experts say that the EU is not set up to be a crisis management response uh, mechanism. But how, do you, how is, in broad terms, without being too specific, have the EU, uh, has the EU uh, reacted to these crises? And, and, and particularly also its media component mm. in dealing with you guys in trying to explain what they're up to in trying to solve these various crises. I mean, if I'm perfectly blunt, I mean, obviously it varies crisis to crisis. I mean, if you were, I think, for instance, take the Ukraine crisis, I've been surprised uh, with how quickly and how unified the, the EU responded, uh, uh, Russia sanctions, uh, you know, there was, there was quite a bit of, of disunity at first, but actually fell into line very quickly. So 
on, on, on Ukraine in particular, it's been incredibly uh, effective. On some of the others, not so effective. I mean, I think the Eurozone crisis, again, six years, we're still here. It took them way too long. Uh, the reactions were disjointed and, and, and contradictory frequently. Same with the refugee crisis. Now, although I would say in the refugee crisis, this was not a EU crisis per se. The refugees would be coming if there was an EU or not. So I'm not sure the EU fairly gets the blame for that. Um, but you mentioned sort of my bit of it, which is sort of the media bit of this and how they handle it. And I guess say on the Eurozone crisis in particular, it's been, been slightly frustrating. Um, you know, again, my background is coming from military affairs. And one of the things the U.S. Army learned uh, not so quickly, but learned eventually was if you want to get the support of the American people on board in a war, you have to explain yourselves to to the media. And Dave Petraeus, who was the commander in Iraq for a good portion of my time in Iraq, um, was very good at that. He would bring you in, put you on his helicopter, you know, explain to you why he was doing what he was doing in Iraq. Uh, and, and, and frequently I found that for the Eurozone crisis, uh, this was an afterthought. Uh, they, it was all about how can I sell this at home politically? And, and, and it's not just me at the Financial Times, but the Wall Street Journal and Reuters and Bloomberg and some of the other news organizations that speak to the market, uh, which is what you have to actually speak to. The people who were responsible for communicating to these, these news organizations were not in the discussions, were not even brought into the very last minute. Here's the deal, now communicate it. Uh, and so I, I think even till this day, um, the communications bit of crisis management is seen as an afterthought. And when and a lot of these issues, particularly as it affects markets, it should be front and center. Uh, trying to communicate what you are doing to a financial market or to your voters uh, sometimes it's more important than the actual policy itself. And I think they're still bad at that. I still think they're not particularly good at that. And I think that's actually part of the reason there's been such a backlash against a lot of EU policies. Okay. Well, it's interesting because when Jean-Claude Juncker became president of the commission uh, almost 18 months ago now, he talked about this becoming a more political commission. He even called it rather dramatically uh, the last chance commission, which which suggests that he's aware of the, the political stakes that play. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious now that the the, the, the communication side, and you are the channel to the outside world, right, yeah. is, is seen as not uh, deserving of more attention. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's changed, but it's changed in a different way. I mean, my criticism under Barroso was they didn't realize they would have to bring the communications people into the decision-making process from square one, so that if I was to go to a spokesman and say, can you explain to me your policy, um, they would have to explain it. I mean, it would happen multiple times during the, during the, the Greek crisis, where I remember particularly the, the second Greek bailout, the communicators had no idea what had been agreed, and it was just the markets went totally nuts because they no one could explain it. The the more political commission, I, you know, I've always sort of struggled to understand what exactly that means from a communication perspective. Uh, what that tells me as a journalist is you're going to spin me, uh, and I don't particularly find that to be, to be spun too. Yeah, exactly, and and I, particularly for civil servants, which is what they largely are, who are responsible for explaining what the commission is up to. Um, I'm not. I don't appreciate being sort of spun. So I kind of resisted, have resisted sort of this this change. I thought under Barroso, look, I'm not sure Barroso will go down in history as the greatest European Commission president of all time. But I think if you were to talk to the spokesman service, you would get very factual answers. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Uh, this is is again, it's I guess politics. It's political. Let me put a little spin on it. Let me do a nice little color graphic with it. Um, which, which I don't find as, as a journalist who relies on nuts and bolts and, and facts and figures uh, to be particularly helpful. And I'm not sure it is winning over voters because uh, we've seen the numbers on, on in the rise of anti-Europe parties. 
And I think the general anti-establishment tendencies in not just Europe and the U.S. as well is against this kind of spin and against this kind of politicization of everything. So I'm not sure it's gone in the right direction, and I'm not, I think they may have suffered because of it. Oh, well, the commission, uh, even now, certainly in the past, has always been seen fairly or unfairly as a kind of faceless bureaucratic machine, uh, where the only person you mentioned, Burroughs, and I mentioned Juncker, the only person maybe getting any kind of media profile, normally speaking, is the president, in this mm-hmm. case, Jean-Claude Juncker. Do you feel with this new structure that Mr. Juncker introduced 18 months ago, where there's the vice presidents and some quite senior political figures from their political past in their home countries have had more of a profile, or is it still seen as a machine run by the president? I think it's still seen as a machine run by the president, but you're right. I think there have been some stars, and I would say there were stars in, in, in Barroso as well. But, you know, obviously, Margaret Vestager, the, the competition commissioner, has become almost more high-profile than Juncker himself because of the cases he's taken on. Taken on. Again, she was the economics minister in, in Denmark, so Ulrich Ritten was a relatively high-profile politician when she got here. She's very media-savvy. Uh, she's got a, a very good, uh, decisive sort of reputation. So she's emerged as a star. Uh, I think I think uh, Federica Mogherini, the, the, the high representative, clearly better at presenting a public profile than her predecessor, Kathy Ashton, who didn't like the media, found this to be you know public diplomacy to be slightly an annoyance, I think. Um, so there have been people who have emerged. Timmermans is another one. Franz Timmermans, the first vice president, I think has been very public and, and, and quite quite developing a profile. But I think the idea of setting up all these vice presidents so they could be the face for their policies has not been a universal success. Because uh, I think, frankly, some of them have, have run into conflicts with the guys underneath them. Right. Uh, we know, for instance, Dombrovskis, who is the vice president for the Euro, doesn't get along hugely with Moscovici, who's the commissioner for economics. We know that sort of Ensip and Ottinger, who both are responsible for, for digital issues, fight, you know, and have differences. Uh, Kanyete and Sapskovich, which are both responsible for, for energy, you know, are, are always stepping on each, on each other's toes. It hasn't been a universal success. I think the biggest difference has been that Barroso was, for good or for ill, very concerned about his public profile. I mean, people would argue he was too thin-skinned, but, you know, he saw himself as the face for Europe. Juncker is a much more behind-the-scenes kind of guy, you know. He's more laid back. Is he as laid back as people say? I, I think he is. I don't think he's in town as frequently as as, as Barroso was, I, you know, in, in talking to to commissioners and staff, um, you know, they will go in and have meetings with Barroso and uh, with Juncker, and, and he will be there. Uh, well, that really wouldn't happen under Barroso. So he's been a much more low-key sort of kind of guy. It's his style. Um, and where, on, on the other hand, you've seen in the council, uh, in, in, in the form of Donald Tusk, someone who's, who's much more, wants to have a much more high profile than, than Hunter Van Rompuy ever did. Uh, and, and frankly, I think he's done a pretty good job of it. I mean, it's been a rough start. Uh, people saw him as being sort of the Polish prime minister in Brussels, didn't really care about the Eurozone, didn't care about sort of issues that were not important to Poland, cared about Russia, cared about energy. But suddenly, you know, he's emerged as sort of the dealmaker on refugees, the dealmaker on Brexit, the dealmaker on the Greek crisis. I think he's been sort of the big surprise of the last... Two years. We'll interrupt you because I mean the conventional wisdom for a while, as you're suggesting uh, uh, before, is that he, at the beginning of the job, he took a while to realize what his job was. Maybe maybe felt like a former prime minister. He was going to be some kind of bureaucrat. But now, what's made him become more proactive and, and more the deal maker, as you say? What wasn't the case in the first few months? No, it wasn't term. at all. And, and it, 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 not only you heard complaints from the other member states, which was you are supposed to be a broker. You're not supposed to be an advocate. Uh, remember, some of the first earlier summits were on Russia sanctions, which was a big Polish issue, uh, energy independence, which was a big Polish issue, uh, and he just didn't want to deal with 
the five presidents report, you know, the future of the EMU. You think Poland's not a member of the Eurozone, so they didn't right. care. Um, and he brought a lot of polls with him. So you'd go over, you know, over to the council and you'd hear sort of the the, the council secretary complain, they don't listen to us, they're this little you know, outfit, he thinks he's still a prime minister, he's got his little group around him, doesn't listen to us. But he's a politician, and what, what good politicians are good at is learning when they are not doing the job they're supposed to be doing and, and responding to outside stimuli. And I think he's gotten better. Now, you still hear grumbling. You still hear grumbling from, from the institution that he is, you know, doesn't listen to them, doesn't engage the ambassadors here, don't like the fact that he doesn't you know, engage with, with, with co-repair and whatnot. The EU, as, EU ambassadors. The EU ambassadors, yeah. you know, but Rumpley was very good at sort of bringing them in for dinner and, and, and sort of sending out his chief of staff to talk to them, and there is still some feeling that, that, that you know, uh, Piotr Serafin, his chief of staff, Tusk's chief of staff, you know, likes to deal with the national Sherpas in the, in the headquarters, but not with the ambassadors here in Brussels. So you still hear some minor, uh, sometimes not so minor, grumbling. But in general, I think he's had three pretty good uh, crises. He, he did pretty well on Greece. I mean, I think it's fair to say that had it not for his intervention between Merkel and Tsipras, Brexit could have happened. I think, you know, from, from a British perspective, perhaps the, the Brexit deal that Cameron uh, got was seen as, you know, not a whole lot. But I guess to say from a Brussels perspective, it was seen as much more than we anticipated Cameron getting. So I think he did a pretty good job on, on getting that done. Um, and, and now on refugees, I mean, it's, it's, it's been rough, but the flow has stopped. He was the guy who sort of was flying to Athens, flying to, to, to all these different capitals, flying to Germany to try to broker the deal. Van Rompuy would never do that kind of stuff. Uh, and I think he's got to get credit on, on that as well. So I think he's had a good sort of, you know, second year, second, you know, 18 months. It was a rough start. But I think uh, he, much more so than Juncker, to be honest with you, has, has overperformed expectations uh, uh, in, his, in his role. Okay. We're coming to the end, uh, so I'll ask one final question. I'm not going to ask you to, to, to name your, the, your successor, but what advice uh, would you give, or have you already forgiven for, uh, given for all I know, to your successor about how to handle the job after you've left? I think the hard thing for any person in Brussels is not to get sucked into the bubble. Um, you know, it is a very insular community. Uh, you know, uh, there's a thousand foreign correspondents. Uh, you know, who are who are uh, attributed to the to the, the institutions here. You end up talking to each other. You socialize with each other. You socialize and, and, and hang out with you know officials here, and you all talk about the same gossip. And I think the very very difficult thing, which I found in Washington too, is you're not writing for Brussels. And I know we're viewed as the Bible of Brussels or whatever you, nomenclature you use. But to be honest with you, I always think of my parents in Phoenix, Arizona. How do I explain this bizarre place to a reader, you know, a doctor, lawyer, academic, you know, our readership in Arizona, Chicago, or Tokyo, Hong Kong? The, the key, and, and the reason I think it worked as an American in, in, in Brussels is you have to remember we're writing Brussels for the world. You know, we're not writing Brussels for Brussels. And, and I think that's been the advice I've given my unnamed successor thus far, is to make sure you continue to keep those people in mind. Because the minute you start writing Brussels for Brussels, you know, you get the, whatever the community is here, 10, 15,000 people, but you miss the million or so readers we have overseas. And that, to me, is the most important thing. And because they're important issues. I mean, the things we've talked about, Greece, Ukraine, refugees, I mean, these are issues that have global impact. And if you're writing about you know, what official is fighting with what official in the Berlamont or whatnot, you're not addressing that audience and explaining to that broader audience why these things that are happening in Brussels are important. So that has always been my, my lodestar. Is my mother going to understand that when she picks up the paper the next morning? Thank you very much for your time, Peter Speaker. My pleasure.